Welcome to the Oceanside Sanctuary Podcast. We're continuing our series titled Presence. Throughout this series, we are learning to become aware of the divine in our midst. Today, Pastor Jason Coker shares a teaching from Psalm 85 titled Lament. All right, we're going to continue with our sermon series on uh, the presence of God. Today, we are almost done with this. Just a couple more weeks, we're going to wrap it up, actually, the second week of March. And one of the things we're going to do, I just want to put this sort of bug in your ear, is sometimes Janelle, uh, my wife, who's also on staff here, will uh, convene a group of people and talk a little bit about uh, how God has been maybe moving in their lives and speaking to them here uh, through the church or beyond the church with their lives out in their neighborhoods or their workplaces. And so she's actually going to wrap up this series the second week of March with one of those. So Janelle actually is going to be the person on duty that day. And uh, I'm pretty sure that means that I will be doing some clothes shopping for, you know, non-plaid shirts that I can wear (laughs) after that. So we're going to be wrapping this up in just another couple weeks. Today we're going to talk about Uh, how we experience the presence of God through lament. And this might be a little bit different uh, sermon than you might normally hear in church because just to give the punchline away now, just so you know whether you're going to like this or not, I'm basically going to tell you today that you cannot have a healthy relationship with God or, parentheses, anybody unless you're willing to make your complaints known that any healthy relationship involves being willing to make your complaints known. And so we're going to talk about how we do that within the context of a relationship with the God who created us and all things. But before we do that, would you just pray with me? God, we just come before you today and we ask that as we approach these passages, uh, as we read a bit about how uh, you call others Uh, in the past to engage in open and honest uh, and sometimes frustrated relationship with you, we pray that you would break open in each of us here today a new imagination for what it might look like for us to practice your presence throughout the trials and difficulties of our lives as well as through the good times and through the successes We ask, God, that you would give us the courage to really be honest about who we are and what we're experiencing and how we might be uh, wrestling with uh, failures or grief uh, or disappointment, oftentimes in the way that uh, you haven't lived up to our expectations. We want to be honest about that and true about our own feelings and thoughts so that we can have a genuine, honest relationship with you and with each other. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, This slide, by the way, says a lot about my life lately. I don't know about you, but we we have a... I'm getting a little music over here, Alex. If we could just turn that off, that would be awesome for me. So, uh, we... We're the kind of family that has uh, sort of a small menagerie at home. We actually have two, two dogs and a cat. And uh, ever since our youngest daughter moved out, our youngest daughter is in college now, so we are officially empty nesters. A new phenomenon has happened. We have two dogs. Those dogs are golden retrievers and a cat. The cat belonged to our daughters and generally lived upstairs. But ever since our final daughter moved out of the house, 
a really interesting thing started to happen. The first thing that happened was our newest dog, Zeke, who's technically still a puppy, decided that it would be a good idea for him to sleep on our bed every night. And I'm the only person who thought that wasn't a great idea, so he decided he was going to sleep on the bed every night. And then, of course, Fern, the other dog, got jealous. And the next thing you know, she's sleeping on our bed every night. And then the cat, who and the dogs, by the way, the dogs love the cat. The cat's name is Clementine. Uh, she's a little orange cat. The dogs just adore Clementine, but Clementine could not hate the dogs more. <laughs> and so... Uh, it took a little while, but eventually, after I think Clementine realized that our youngest daughter you know, wasn't coming back after a while, that's who she would sleep with at night, pretty soon Clementine started making her way down to our bedroom, which is down in like the lower uh, level of our house. And so next thing you know, Clementine jumps up into the bed, and she's sleeping with us, which makes for some interesting fireworks, because this picture pretty much captures Clementine's general attitude about life. Whereas Zeke and Fern, like dogs are, generally are, Zeke, Zeke and Fern are eternal optimists. Everything is good, everything is okay. Even when things are bad, it's gonna be okay, right? They wanna be in your face, affirming you at all times, no matter what you say, no matter what you do. And can we just be honest? Like, I like dogs. There are two dogs here today, this morning. No offense to the dogs in the room or the dog lovers in the room. I just find it hard to respect that. <laughs> Dogs are happy no matter what. They, they just love you no matter what, right? Like you could yell at them, you could kick them, you could refuse to feed them. They will just love you more. It's like they worship you. And I, don't get me wrong, I get it. I mean, that's a nice feeling. But the cat makes me work for it. The cat is not impressed with my speeches. The cat is not impressed with how I have apportioned food to her twice a day on a very particular schedule. She is not impressed with you know, my ability to scratch her you know, behind the ears or under the chin or whatever else it is that she wants. I mean, she will take my meager offerings, but she won't be entirely happy about it. And I really respect that. Like, I, I just... It just makes me want to like love her more. And in the middle of the night, sometimes when we're sleeping, of course, the, the dogs, the two dogs are, are more than happy to accommodate, you know, like the tossing and the turning and the rolling. They'll get out of the way. You know, they'll scoot down towards the bottom of the bed. They'll, you know, go on either side of Janelle. So now there's like, you know, a dog between us or two dogs between us or whatever. They're happy. They're fluid. They're totally, what's the word? They're flexible. They're here for us. The cat, on the other hand, I spend half the night in terrified anticipation that I might roll the wrong way in the middle of the night, and then she will claw you in the middle of the night. Because, by the way, she's under the covers, right? So she's like gotten under the covers. Uh, this now is a picture of our pathetic existence post-child. Like, we don't have any kids in the house. We're basically sleeping with a little zoo every single night. But this is, I have to admit, what I really enjoy about the cat. She is a realist, not an optimist. She sees what's going on with life, and she is not willing to pretend that everything is okay. I think as Christians and as churches, especially in the Protestant tradition, 
We have a lot to learn from that sort of honest assessment of what's going on in our lives. Maybe you've noticed, I certainly have, that very often when you're a part of a church or you attend church or you become a Christian, that it's communicated to you either overtly or covertly pretty quickly that everything should be okay with you at all times because now you have Jesus. In some settings, if everything is not okay with you at all times now that you have Jesus, you will very quickly be socialized to pretend that everything is now okay at all times because of Jesus. If you show up in this place and somebody says, how are you doing, and you tell them the truth about how you're doing, and it's anything less than you know, puppies and sunshine and rainbows from you know, Monday through Friday, then uh, that messes with our theology. And so today I want to talk about this wonderful tradition that we have from the Jewish tradition called lament. Uh, Lament exists not just in the Jewish tradition. In fact, like a lot of things in the Old Testament, communal lamentation comes from the culture around the ancient uh, Jews who lived in the ancient Near East where, where there was a common practice that when things didn't go the way everybody thought they should, that they would often gather and they would lodge their complaints to God as a part of their worship service, as a part of their gathering. Uh, and that's an incredible contrast to, I think, what we often do in church when we are trying to cozy up to God with nothing but our praise and our doxology. Psalm chapter 85, verses. Uh, I'm, I'm going to start in verse 1. We're going to go ahead and read through it. Today we had this psalm as a part of our public reading, uh, but we actually started a little bit later than this. So I'm going to back up a little bit. I'm just going to read through Psalm 85. It's not a very long psalm, but you might have to hang in there with me for just a few minutes. This is a perfect example of a communal lament. Like a lot of psalms, Psalm 85 is essentially a kind of a liturgical structure for a worship gathering for the ancient Jews. And it would have been a useful worship service for them uh, if, you know, as a people, they suddenly were experiencing a bit of failure in their lives or dashed hopes or dashed expectations or, God forbid, violence or other sort of forms of curses in their lives. Now, we're talking about ancient Jews, so they have spent the majority of their existence experiencing those kinds of horrors and failures. So one of the reasons why the Jewish tradition is so rich with lament. So let's just read this together, and we'll see a couple of patterns. Uh, Psalm 85, verse 1. To the leader, this is the worship leader, essentially. To the leader of the Korahites, a psalm. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You pardoned all their sin. Selah, which just means, of course, pause and reflect. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. Now, what we see happening here in the first four verses is a kind of pattern for lament. And the pattern goes like this. We have a relationship with God, and that God has done amazing things in the past. So right at the outset of the lament, 
you actually have the worshipers reminding God of God's own power, reminding God of God's own ability to make things right, because after all, in the past, this God has made things right. You forgave the iniquity of your people. And now there's a bit of a turn here towards the end of verse 4. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. So the, the psalmist, the worship leader, essentially is saying to God, hey, I don't know what's going on here, but things aren't quite right. Maybe they're being attacked by an enemy. Um, maybe there's some sort of a sickness or a curse in the land. I don't know what has, has happened, God, but something has changed. In the past, you've been there for us, but now this isn't working out. Would you please turn your anger away from us? So it's natural for them to interpret the terrible thing that is happening, whatever that might be. It's natural for them to say, well, maybe God is mad at us. Maybe there's a problem. And you should understand that. My guess is however your faith looks, however long you've had your faith, or if you're thinking about having some expression of faith, you probably have asked that question too. What, what's going on? Why is everything falling apart? Is God mad at me? Did I do something wrong? Am I being punished cosmically for this, this terrible thing that's, that's happening in my life? Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? So listen, this is pretty bad, God. How long is this going to go on? How long will we have to suffer under this curse? Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? By the way, that is not even subtly manipulative. <laughs> will you not revive us again so that your people? Hey, by the way, you know, we, we've told everybody that you're our God. We've told everybody who will listen that we follow you and that you're the most powerful one. So right about now, you're not looking so good, buddy. You need help us help you. So that your people may rejoice in you. Remember when we used to shout with joy, shout with praise, shout with rejoicing because you had done so many wonderful things for us? Well, we want to do that again. We, we really sincerely do. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Again, the appeal to salvation. Save us from these circumstances. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his faithful to those who turn to him in their hearts. So now there's a kind of formula that's being spoken out loud for maybe how this situation can be turned around. For he will speak peace to his people, to his faithful, to those who turn to him in their hearts. Now, what's happening here is a kind of re recapitulation in this psalm of the typical formula for salvation. And the typical formula for salvation is things are bad in my life. Maybe I'm hungry. Maybe I'm sick. Maybe my enemy is attacking me. Well, that's fine. What we do is we turn to God, and after we turn to God, then all of our problems go away, right? We turn to God, and all of our problems go away, right? <laughs> really? You guys, you shouldn't just nod every time the preacher says something. Like, that's a recipe for disaster. 
No, all our problems don't go away when we turn to God and bring our complaints. That's part of the problem here. But you have an effort on the part of the psalmist to say, hey, we really need your help, and in the past, we've received it when we have turned to you. Steadfast love. Now, this is, okay, i got to pause for a second, because this is my favorite part. Surely his salvation is at hand for those who fear him. So now what's happening with this lament is, you know, there was the reminding God of God's own power, reminding God of God's own promises, the things that God has done in the past, and then revisiting the benefits to God if God will save us and the benefits to us if God will save us, and then kind of the articulation of a formula for salvation, and then the the psalmist here turns very poetic, which is a common thing for, for prophetic passages in the Old Testament to use these really powerfully evocative, poetic phrases. Surely his salvation is at hand for those who fear him. That's an expression of faith, an expression of trust. Now that we've done this, we trust that this is going to work out. We don't don't quite know how, but we believe this is going to work out. Surely his salvation is at hand for those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. All things are going to be restored. We're looking forward to this restoration And then steadfast love and faithfulness will meet. Steadfast love is a reference to God's love, right? And steadfast love, God's God's willingness to love us steadfastly, everlastingly, from now until forever, God's love does not end, that steadfast love will meet faithfulness. And it would be tempting to read that as our faithfulness, as if this were a quid pro quo, but it's not. This is God's faithfulness. Remember a couple weeks ago, we we talked about uh, Genesis 15 and the covenant that Abram made with God. And I told you that Abram used the same pattern of an ancient covenant in Genesis 15 that was used by other cultures around them. That involved like that big bloody mess of cutting animals in half and then walking between them, and then articulating the the stipulations of the covenant contract between a more powerful party and a less powerful party. And I said that that whole thing, that whole bloody scene, is really God borrowing the structure of an ancient contract to say, I'm going to enter into a covenant relationship with you now. But he turns that contract on its head by not requiring Abram to walk through the pieces but instead passing through the pieces on his own. Do you guys remember that, for those of you who were here? right? So what's happening here with this lament is a reminding God of that contract, that covenant. And so when the psalmist talks about steadfast love and faithfulness, he's really talking about God's steadfast love, God's faithfulness meeting, and righteousness and peace will kiss each other. What a beautiful picture that is, that if we are somehow in right connection with God, that if God is fulfilling God's promises, that our lives will be a little bit like righteousness, that's the fulfillment of all that is good, that righteousness and peace, that's not just the absence of conflict, but shalom, the fulfillment of all good things, that those two things would come together and our lives would be fulfilled. That's the end of the lament. 
this whole form, this whole prayer, this whole sort of liturgical gathering that, that we call a lament is a community's coming together in an effort to say to God, things are not right and we want you to help us make them right again. It's driving towards this hope for a good, peaceful, righteous fulfillment in their lives. Now, what I think is just amazing about this, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and stop there in verse 10. There's a little bit more, but, but this is, I think, uh, a nice place for us to end in this particular instance. What I think is amazing about this is that we talk about having a relationship with Jesus all the time or having a relationship with God or experiencing the presence of God all the time as Christians. That's like what we do. That's like our thing in, you know, the 20 and 21st century in modern America. We talk about Jesus as though he's like our lover, like our boyfriend, like the person we wake up next to with the dog and the cat. And, you know, like, like that's how we have a relationship with God. And when, because we speak of God in those sorts of very sentimental terms, generally the way that that relationship looks is that it's always positive. It's always positive. I'm just so happy. Jesus, aren't you happy? Yes, Jason, aren't you happy? Well, I'm a bit like Clementine. No, I'm not happy. I actually have a few complaints that I'd like you to hear. Now you know, by the way, what it's like to be married to me. You can give Janelle all of your condolences later. <laughs> hey, listen, you know, I'm a little grumpy about this, or I'm a little upset about that. Like, like when you're in a relationship with somebody, there are expectations on both sides. Sometimes those expectations are good. Sometimes they're not good. But having a relationship means working that out. And you can only work that out by being honest about them. Why isn't the same thing true of our relationship with God? Shouldn't we be willing to stand before God and bring our complaint? Or do we approach God with our complaints and mask them as praise? When we do that in our actual, physical, face-to-face -face relationships with each other, we call that toxic. It's like nothing worse than toxic positivity for me. If you have a problem with me, say so. I might not like it. I might raise my voice, I might get defensive, I might be hurt, but the only way that I'm going to grow is if you tell me. The only way that I'm maybe going to be able to learn how to love you better is if you show me how I'm not loving you right. I think it's really challenging and stretching for us to imagine our relationship with God in the same way, but I do think that that is what the tradition of lament teaches us to do, and I think we are poorer as a people because we don't do it. I love this quote. This is Walter Brueggemann, who's a, who's a mainline uh, Old Testament scholar and always has like, really challenging things, I think, to share, but he's particularly hot on this issue of lament and how we haven't incorporated lament into our worship gatherings. He says this, where lament is absent, covenant comes into being only as a celebration of joy and well-being. You ever been a part of a church where all it ever was was a celebration of joy and well-being? Well, that's fun as long as things are going well. I mean, that's fun as long as everybody in the congregation is like, you know, rich enough to be happy or at least pretend like they're happy, right? He goes on to say this. 
or in political categories, the greater party, so that would be God, the greater party is surrounded by subjects who are always yes men and women from whom never is heard a discouraging word. And since such a celebrative, by the way, not a real word, but who am I to argue with him, right? <laughs> since such a celebrative consenting silence does not square with reality, are you with me? Since such a celebrative, consenting silence does not square with reality, covenant minus lament is finally a practice of denial, cover-up, and pretense with sanctions, which sanctions social control. Okay, so... What Brueggemann basically is saying is that when we all get together and we insist as people of faith or people are trying to have faith or people who are struggling with their faith or people who are like, you know, wondering if it's okay to lose their faith because that's all of us here, right? Brueggemann's saying when we all get together and we insist on being in happy, clappy Christians who pretend like everything is okay because Jesus, what we really create is an environment of social control where we try to coerce each other with happiness. And, you know, I'm not interested in that. I don't know about you, um, but I'd rather you just, like, try to overtly control me. I do. It doesn't work. <laughs> Be careful of that one, by the way. So, social control. Uh, Brigham goes on to say this. I think this is really helpful. He says, where there is lament, in other words, if we have a community of people who are willing to engage in lament with God, the believer is able to take initiative with God and so develop over against God the ego strength that is necessary for responsible faith. But where the capacity to initiate lament is absent, one is left only with praise and doxology. The absence of lament makes a religion of coercive obedience the only possibility. Okay, so, I know, it's getting to be a little bit long. I'm almost done. So, so what Brueggemann's saying here, of course, is just that in order for us to be healthy human beings, like to exist in a healthy relationship, like we have to have a strong enough ego to look somebody else in the eye and say, hey, I don't agree hey, I, I actually don't like it when you speak to me that way. Uh, you know what? Um, I don't think that's right, and I don't want to participate in that anymore. Now, my guess is, is that you all have experienced the necessity of that kind of strength in your relationships with your spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a business partner or a coworker or a family member you probably all experienced that. Like, you need to develop enough of a sense of yourself that you can stand up to the other person who isn't meeting your needs. Lament teaches us that we need to be able to do the same thing with God. That it's not a real relationship if you don't. It's not a real relationship if you don't. Jesus, towards the end of his ministry, took his disciples, he gathered them together, and he said, listen, I no longer call you my students. 
I now call you my friends. Because being a Christian and being a person of faith is a process of growing up. God doesn't want you to be codependent little children who come in here every Sunday and worship him no matter what's going on with the rest of your lives and pretending like everything is okay. Everything's not okay. And God wants to have that kind of relationship with us. So we lose a sense of the genuine presence of God when we aren't willing to do that. So just a couple questions before we wrap this up. Is your relationship with God all about praise? Is your relationship with God all about praise? Do you have a tendency to sort of slip into that? If not, good. You didn't have to come to church today. You should have gone to the beach or something. But if you find yourself when you walk into this space or any other space that's Christian and you find yourself feeling the pressure to conform to some false, toxic positivity, please don't do that. If you want, I'll loan Clementine to you for a couple of nights. Or a month or two. Yeah, yeah. And she will quickly cure you of that. Uh, my second question is, how are you in your life, not just here, but in your family relationships or your friendships or, um, or your domestic partnerships? How are you participating in a kind of silent consent? by shutting up about what's going on in your life, by being unwilling to speak it, by being unwilling to be real and honest about it? How are you giving silent consent to the inequality of that relationship? Now, I think it'd be fascinating to ask that question from our perspective as a congregation. But hey, let's just start in our personal lives. Where are we giving silent consent to those kinds of toxic relationships? And then how can we as a church learn how to better be honest about what's hard? One of the things that we do here, most of you know this because most of you have been here for a little while. One of the things that we do here that gets really, really tiresome is every time there's a mass shooting, we set up enough candles for every victim, and we make a space and a time in our gatherings to light those candles, to pray, uh, some kind of comfort for the families. And we do that because that should be an expression of lament. We don't do that because, you know, like we as a church are like anti-gun or something. I'm sure many of you are anti-gun, and I'm sure many of you are like, woohoo, guns, right? That's not the point. We do it because it's not right that people would get gunned down in public. It's not right. And I'm kind of upset with God about it. 
And so I need to come here with all of you and light those candles and express that complaint. I know it's not going to fix it. And we don't pretend that our prayers are going to fix that problem. We talk about that all the time here. But I'm also not going to pretend that I'm not really, really frustrated about that issue and that part of my frustration is with God. Now, God can deal with me and my, you know, poor theology or my, you know, projecting upon God, you know, unrealistic ex- expectations. Like, you don't have to defend God. God can defend God's own self from my accusations. But we have this place so that we can do that sort of thing. So that I can have a healthier relationship with God. Because I worship a God that's not afraid of that. And so that's what I want to invite you into. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. Uh, Holy Spirit, we, uh, we ask that you would meet us in every corner of our lives as people of spirit. And one of those corners is with our frustration, our unmet expectations, our confusion, our anger, and our complaints oftentimes against you. So I pray, God, that you would help us to become the kind of people who are willing to have a complicated relationship with you, that we would bring our whole selves to our covenant with the creator of the universe. We know and believe and have experienced your redemptive love in our lives. But because of that, we're often confused and frustrated when that love seems to be absent or silent. And so we ask that you would make space for us. And that we would make space for each other to be people who sometimes are confused, frustrated, angry, negative, and pessimistic. Help us to be people who make space for all those feelings in our spirituality. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to worship together, um, but I wanted to let you know that Lent is coming up. And Lent is partly an opportunity for us to explore for a period of time in a ritualistic way to explore what it's like to come to grips with some of the negative aspects of what we bring to our faith. And so I want to invite you actually this year to do a devotional with us as a congregation. This is called For the Beauty of the Earth. It's a Lent devotional. And there are 10 copies in the cafe on these tables. There's a table at the back and a table at the front. If you would like to do this devotional with us this year, there are a couple of things you can do. Number one, you can grab one of these, and uh, if you can afford it, these are five bucks. You can pop five bucks in the uh, offering box at the back, or you can pay for it online. If you can't give five dollars for this, that's okay. Just don't. Or if you can give a dollar or two dollars or you know two thousand dollars, you can feel free to do that too, right? <laughs> Uh, but everybody can have one of these if they want it. If you, if you uh, want to do this 
and you have the money, you could also just order this on Amazon for yourself so that we have these copies here for people who might be able to grab them otherwise. But this devotion uh, takes on the season of Lent and approaches our responsibility for creation. That's why it's called For the Beauty of the Earth. And one of the things our church is doing is getting more involved in advocating for environmental issues. That's why we're doing the Surfrider Beach Cleanup uh, next month. And so that's a theme that we're trying to lean into more this year. So I want to invite you to do this with us uh, for the Lent season. Would you just stand? Let's worship together before we head out. Mm -hmm.